The next few messages that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is going to be called uh, a farewell, a farewell address. And this is Jesus' farewell address to his disciples and all those that were following him. And as we begin the message, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what we've already heard through message, through song, through prayer. We thank you that John is here and we pray for his wife Nancy that she would feel better. We're thankful for a man like John in our association that helps churches like ours do more together than we can do alone. And we just are so appreciative of those that are here this morning, those that are here every week, and then those that are visiting. Lord, we are surely blessed to be in your house this morning. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Going the wrong way on a one-way street. I have a question for you to kind of get us started off. Something to help you simmer a little bit and think about what we're going to be discussing this morning. Can you answer this question that in my belief in Jesus Christ, is he one of the ways I find fulfillment in my life? Or is he the only way? Well, we're all good Baptists. We're all good Christians here this morning. We'll say, of course, preacher, Jesus is the only way we find fulfillment. Well, I would agree with you. We know that. But does it play out in your life? Are you, are you willing to look at your life and look at your checkbook, look at your calendar, look at those that are your friends and say, is Jesus Christ where I find my fulfillment or am I finding it in something else? Well, in going the wrong way on a one-way street, uh, if anybody has driven for any length of time, I'm sure that at some point you will mistakenly drive down a street that says one way. And you're going the wrong way. I can remember my horror sometimes when there was one time I was going down 85 in the uh, northbound lane. And then I looked over in the southbound lane, and there was another precious little old lady in her Oldsmobile going north in the southbound lane. I thought, oh my goodness, this is not going to be good. But luckily, someone stopped her and nobody was hurt. But sometimes we can get turned around, can't we? Sometimes we can go the wrong way on a one-way street. Well, I want to show you a picture of a few folks that are friends of mine. Uh, this is uh, Daryl on the far left. He is... Just finished PA school, so we're very proud of him. And then across from him, of course, my beautiful wife, and then our friends, Rick and Laurie. We were going to Richmond back in 2011. We were going to do a mission trip with our college students. And so we did what you would call a, a pre-planned trip where we would go and find places to stay, find uh, areas to work on and, and those types of things. And, well... What we found is, is that that night we were going into Richmond, we found our place to stay, we were going to go see Daryl who lived in Richmond at the time, and so it was about 9.30, 10 o'clock in, in the city of Richmond, and we went to his apartment, and at that time of night for that area there weren't many cars there, and so my friend who gets, I guess you could say, twisted up when he drives, you know those people that, you know, just, they get all torqued up when they're driving. And, and if you're navigating, you better either be on it or just not say anything at all, right? Well, 
he was the driver and I was the navigator. And, I mean, we were, like, going a couple of blocks. And then I say, okay, turn here. He turns, and all of a sudden, we see the, saw, the sign, one way. And all he could do is shout, we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. I'm like, there's nobody around. There's, there's no cars. There's no headlights. But we're going the wrong way. Yes, we were going the wrong way. And you know what? All joking aside, we were very fortunate that there were no other cars coming the other way. We are very fortunate that in that moment of going the wrong way, that we weren't met by somebody going the right way. Because the, 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 the actual happening could have been very catastrophic and maybe even fatal. When we go the wrong way on a one-way street. Well, what we see here is we see that as Jesus is talking to his disciples, this is his farewell address. Jesus' days were numbered, folks. His disciples, his family, and his friends were going to ever get who he truly was if they were going to be able to comprehend But he was not just a friend, not just a leader, not just a son, not just a half-brother. But if he was going to be who God sent him to be, they would have to get it. They would have to understand. And in his last moments, folks, I have been in rooms and I have been in situations to where families say their last words. And all they can do is mutter with their, their most, the most strength that they have, words like, I love you. I'm going to be okay. Or I see heaven. These last, these last moments, these last instructions that were so important to Jesus to get across. So I hope that when you read this, these are going to be verses that if you've ever attended vacation Bible school or, or gone to church for any length of time, you've probably heard these verses. But I pray that you, you allow the urgency of these words, the magnitude, the weight of these words to minister to your hearts today. Because Jesus is proclaiming in this passage, He is the only way to God. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to eternal life. He's saying, folks, this is a one-way road, and it only goes in one direction, and I am the way. Amen? Well, we see here that the first thing he does is that Jesus is preparing one place for us. Let's look at the first three verses of John 14. He says, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be. Also, I love the way John 
captures this in his writing. And I love the fact that the very first thing that Jesus wants the people to focus on is their hearts. What does he say to these disciples, to his mother, to to his family? What does he say to them? Because they are about to see the most horrific events unfold that they have ever seen. Can you imagine the trauma that they are going to endure? And, And he's preparing them ahead of time saying, these things that you're going to see me go through, these, this agony that I'm going to be taking upon myself, don't let your hearts be troubled. We see here that Jesus is teaching the disciples to do something very important that we would benefit from today. He's telling the disciples to shift, S-H-I-F-T, shift their focus from the anxiety and doubt of the moment they are living in and focus on the promise of the future. Check check it out here, church. That is a great word for us. Is your heart troubled today? Is your heart heavy for something? Let me ask you, are you focusing on the here and the now? Or are you shifting your focus on what's going to happen in the future with God's hand upon it? Jesus is saying, right now is tough, but it just gets better. Don't become so overwhelmed with your situation that you lose sight of who I am. Satan, folks, he will always make our present and even our past seem bigger than God. He has a way of magnifying that. Those things, those sins that you and I commit in private are very secretive, very quiet. But when it comes time for accusations, he will shout it from the mountaintops and accuse you of everything you have done wrong. Some of you even here today, you would say, I would really be, you know, there is no way Jesus could love me after the things he, that I have done. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Even this very morning, you're loaded with the weight of a situation. The moment I mentioned it, you feel the knots on your neck starting to tense up. Folks, things like big worries and anxiety, and the, they are lack of trust. They, they are products of doubt. And, and when we doubt God, and when we doubt Jesus Christ, that brings a paralysis to our lives. You know, where you, you, use the, you lose the, the use of your extremities. When we let fear and doubt consume our lives, spiritually we become paralyzed. And we can't move. We have to overthink things. And we start having doubt. The worst thing about that is that it shows that we have a very little faith. Folks, listen, I know today's world is growing evil. I know that every day we turn on the television or log on to our computer, we are going to find something to where some Christians' rights are being taken away. I understand that. But if we cower in the walls of our church and complain about how bad it is, we are no different than some of these disciples that will be doubting in just a moment. 
Because God is on the throne. He is bigger than a politician. He is bigger than an amendment. He is bigger than the worries that you carried in this morning. He is God. But Jesus was preparing His disciples, and Jesus knew the disciples would have to have heart for what they were about to do. That's the thing. Look, as Jesus is looking into the eyes of those at the table, and I, I think I have a picture of uh, Jesus at the Last Supper. This is from the movie The Passion of the Christ. I, I think it's amazing as you visualize the Last Supper. He's looking into the eyes of His disciples. He knows that sitting at that table, there is His betrayer. He looks at that table and He knows His greatest friend is going to deny Him. He looks at that table and he knows that when the going gets tough, the tough gets scattering. But yet, he's still telling them, please have heart. Because although he knows that they are going to fail in the temporary, they go on to do great things to the point of dying for their faith. He's telling them, don't let your hearts be troubled about what you're going to endure. And I would say today, folks, today, church, don't let your hearts be troubled. If your heart is troubled, it's not because God is allowing it to be. It's a choice that you and I make. And if you are a Christian today, you are in God's hands. The second part of verse 1 says, Believe in God, believe also in me. When the disciples are torn out of their frame, he's reminding them that they are in God's hands. Today, you are in God's hands. And we see here that belief also brings rest. Folks, don't ask God for anything less than the comfort that he gives when you can rest in him. Rest does not mean you sit on your back porch with a glass of lemonade and feel the southern breeze on your face. Rest means that when the going gets tough, you know that God has got this. And He does. Whether it be an exam that you're studying for in school, or, or whether it be a court proceeding that's coming up, or whether it be your favorite character on your favorite show might not make it back next year. I don't know what it might be. But we all have things in our lives that seek to drag us down. Satan tells you that you can't have peace. He tells you that you're not worthy of peace. And you're not worthy of God's love. All Satan can do is accuse. Folks, Satan is our accuser, not our redeemer. Jesus is going away, he says. He says, I'm going away. I'm leaving you. But while I'm gone, I'm not just going to be uh, sipping lemonade sitting at the right hand of God. He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. It says in verse 3 that Jesus is going away, but while he's away, he is working. And he will be returning. And he will be receiving us unto himself. When he says working, Jesus is actively building specifically a place for the believer. If you believe in Jesus Christ today and your faith 
you have confessed Jesus Christ, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you have asked Him to come into your life, you are a Christian, and I want you to know your place is being built. I think of the excitement of a wedding. The planning processes, the preparation that takes place. I've had the opportunity to marry uh, many couples, and, and I also too went to a wedding, so I have a little bit of idea, no near the idea that my wife did, because she did a lot of the planning. But all of that work, all of those details. What color do you want the bows on the pews? I don't care. What color flowers you want? Whatever you want, dear. What do you want at the wedding? I don't care. I'm not going to get to eat anyway. But yet all of these little minute things that take sometimes a year or more to plan for, maybe at best a 30 or 40 minute service and about an hour or two reception afterwards. Year of planning going into that. I think of that. And all the work that goes into a wedding. But yet when it's carried out, it's beautiful. And folks, when Jesus says that I am going to prepare a place for you, we know because of His ascended state, we know that He told Thomas, He said, put your hands in the hole in my side, the holes in my wrist. I can just imagine right now, Jesus with that saw and those nail-scarred hands. Building my place in glory. And every time he looks at that scar, he thinks about what he's done for me. He thinks about what he's done for you, folks. He is building a place for you. And he is returning. He says, I am going away, but yet I am coming back. And receiving implies that we are going to have to die to get there. Now, we don't know. Jesus Christ may come back any day. We might not experience physical death. But if we do or we don't, it's immaterial. Because I know this. This body that we wear, some of you got, got good-looking vessels there, okay? You're a good-looking vessel. Some of you, your vessel's you know, a little wrinkled, a little leaky. You know, we, we understand that. But you know what? When we get to heaven, it's going to be a new body. A new place. And he gives us hope in this passage. And let me just, if, if you would allow me for a second, let's go to Revelation chapter 22, because when we talk about the place, the Bible gives us glimpses of what that place is. And I'd like for us to look at Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Starting with verse 1 of Revelation 22, he says, Then he showed me the river of a living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the broad street of the city, on both sides of the river, there was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its very fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. What does that mean? It means that there will no longer be any sin. And it says, after that, it says, 
they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist and people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. We all that are believers can have a piece of that. It's no secret that Don and I, we love uh, when we can during Christmas to go to New York and spend a few days there because you know they have it decorated real nice and, and uh, Don and I just really love that. And I remember a story years ago. There was a man that bought maybe a, a, a four-by-eight plot of unusable land in New York City. And then he subdivided that four-foot-by-eight-foot four plot into smaller plots that were about the size of the stamps. And so I think it was like an Internet order thing or a mail order thing. For $100, you could own a piece of land in New York City. You couldn't build on it. You couldn't live on it. <laughs> you probably could pay taxes on it. But you could own a piece of that land. But it was unusable. Folks, I'm telling you what. The place that Jesus is preparing for you is bought and sold through His blood, Jesus Christ. And I know this, that when we go there, we can use every bit of it. It's prepared just for you. Well, the second thing we see in verses 4 through 6 is that Jesus is the one way to God. Verses 4 through 6. You know the way where I am going. And then Lord Thomas said, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we see in this verse is that because of Jesus Christ and what we call the priesthood of believer, meaning that when we accept Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. We do not need to go through any man or woman on earth, no principality other than the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Because we understand now that, that in, in our time, that's not a, a huge thing, because you've heard that a lot. Oh yeah, I know I've got direct access for God. But you forget, before Jesus Christ, you did not have direct access to God. Before Jesus Christ... You had to depend on sacrifices and priests and, and, and ceremonies to be able to approach God. And even then, you couldn't see Him. You couldn't be with Him. It always had to be someone interceding for you. Jesus says to them, which revolutionizes their lives, that I am the way to God. It reminds me of, uh, I'm, I'm at least old enough to know what life was like before ATMs. Can you imagine that? I thought about that the other day. I said, I'm getting old. I was talking to kids the other day, and I said, yeah, I remember the first cell phone that was invented. <laughs> Golly! You remember cell phones? You must be like a caveman or something. But I remember the first ATM. And I thought, man, this is cool. Got my card. Stick it in the machine. 
and I have direct access to my money anytime I need it. And I did, except there's one thing that I needed. It's called a pen. Personal identification number. If I don't have my pen, I don't get my money. Folks, if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will not be able to draw from the bank of God that gives every day. He is the access code. Direct access. And as close and committed as the disciples were to Jesus, they still didn't fully trust him. Listen, I don't want to throw Thomas under the bus. If anything, I want to thank Thomas for asking what everybody else in the room thought. They thought, what are you talking about? I don't understand this. Thomas, he had a legitimate beef here. I mean, think about this. Those men had left their lives. They had left their jobs. They had left their family. They had left their security to follow him. And he had, Thomas had plans for his life. Folks, you and I, we have plans for our lives. But to get, we want to get all the information on the table. And in a great, grand world, we would like to think that when we make a decision, whether it be for something financial or for our life or for a job or whatever it is, we like to get all the cards on the table. We like to have all the information in our, our post-its and our stacks. And, and we would like to know not only all the information that we need, but also account for every variable, everything that could impact that decision. And so that when we do make that decision, everything will just fall into line. There will be no risk and everything will be great, right? When has God ever worked like that? <laughs> Not in my life. Not in Scripture. God always gives you just enough to step out on faith. Just enough to trust and obey. Surely the answer in Thomas's mind was more than just trust and obey. The third thing we see is that Jesus is our one fulfillment. Verses 7 through 11. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, he was the evangelist, by the way. He was the preacher boy. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father that is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. I want you to understand, Jesus' death and resurrection changed things forever. The Bible calls it a covenant. Before Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, we had to go through the, the, the Mosaic Law was what we followed, which is basically the, the first five books of the Bible based around the Ten Commandments. And if you followed those laws good enough, and you made the right sacrifices, 
and you did the right things, you could know God. But in the Old Testament, God established that. And everyone is sinners. There were sinners before Christ, and people were sinners after Christ. Again, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. But if you look just for a moment, if you want to look at Jeremiah chapter 31, this is where things change. And there are a few other verses that speak of this, but this is one of the more popular ones. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And verse 33 says, Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declarations. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What are you saying here? That Jesus' death provides for us a new covenant. That we now, as I said earlier, can have direct access to God. Luke 22, verse 20 says this. He says, In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood, and it is shed for you. As he held that cup up, and we just did the Lord's Supper last week. As he held that cup up, he's saying, What you're about to drink is symbolic of a new covenant. Again, we being further along in the process, we understand this, but to the disciples, this was life-changing. Being men who were familiar with the keeping of the laws, this was groundbreaking for them. No longer did they have to be good enough to approach God. Do you hear what I'm saying? No longer did they have to be good enough. Folks, today God is approachable. Just like a child going to his father or her father and sitting in his lap just so they can tell him where it hurts. Being able to put, a child being able to put his or her head on their mother's father or chest just to hear their heart beat and to watch their chest rise and fall as they breathe. Just to feel the protection of that parent. That close, intimate relationship because of Jesus Christ, you can now have with God. Before Jesus Christ, you didn't have that. And He's telling His disciples, I am changing things better than you ever could have thought of. And to know Jesus, He is saying, is to know God. Folks, we like the disciples are going to have to depend on Jesus because He is the full fulfillment of God. God has never moved in anyone's life, including mine, where we were able to make a well-informed decision without the element of faith. And we see here, let's take just a moment to look at Philip's comment in verse 8. What Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, I am enough. Jesus is enough. Philip wants proof. And he asks Jesus, he says, do you think it is wise to put God through a test? That's what Philip was asking for. He's saying, oh, Jesus, just show us a sign. And Jesus is like, come on, man. Everything that you have seen that I have done, 
Every work that I have done, every word that I have shared, every miracle that I have done, every one of those have been not me, but God who is in me. Folks, what we see here is that science will never fully prove God. There are not enough books written that will allow you to fully understand God. And though and through the Bible and God's Word, hear me out here, we can fully know God, but we will never fully figure Him out. His ways are not of our ways. We can know God to the best of our ability, to the the highest capacity of our lives. As much as we can know God, we can do that, but we will never know everything about God. And the fool who says there is no God is standing on the same premise we believe. If someone says, I don't believe in God and there is no God, they have the same burden of proof to prove that he is not God as we do to prove that he is. So for someone to say there is no God, they are a fool. And they'll never back up what they say. They can never prove it, but they can say because they spout that off that it's true. And I feel sorry for them. And you may be in here today struggling with the existence of God. And I would tell you, look, if you're right, I haven't lost a thing. If, if I die and there is no God, then... I have not lost a thing because my life living for God has been so much better than when I lived thinking that there was not one. Folks, Jesus is your fulfillment today, tomorrow, and forever. He is every answer that you'll ever need. He is every prayer that you will ever utter. Your only hope of eternity and the only way to live the life that God built you for. Jesus is that way. To seek fulfillment from anything or anyone apart from Jesus Christ results in unfulfillment. You know what that means? It results in the unfulfillment of a works-based faith. It results in obligation, guilt. Oh, I'm not doing enough. It ends up in what we call religion. Religion meaning that we think that there's a preset number of things that we can do to earn God's love. I speak with people all the time and they say when they're in their last days, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. I got news for you. Your bad will always outweigh your good. Because we are sinners. But yet, we'll never be good enough But when we accept Jesus Christ into our lives as Savior and Lord, it's not our badness that God sees, but it's Jesus' goodness that's covered in the blood. In closing, I want to show you that picture of Jesus again at the Lord's Supper. Remember, Jesus, his primary concern at this farewell address is not the events that he's going to have to endure. He's not worried about going to the cross. He's not worried about having to die for their sins and your sins today. What is he trying to do in this passage? He is trying to prepare the disciples for what will happen next. They learned like we that must we must learn that the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way and he has prepared the only place that will last 
for eternity. And He is our only source of fulfillment. The way, the one way to eternal life has been prepared by Jesus Christ. The only obstacle to you finding that place, to finding that that fulfillment, the only way that you can find that is by being willing to accept it. And for those of you that are are Christians, as long as you can remember, and, and you are rock solid in your faith today, I want you to understand that, yes, you are saved, but there is always room to know God better. There is always room to, to, to freshen up on your commitment because today we are being landblasted about our position on Scriptures. We're being told that we're intolerant. We're being told that we are, are Bible thumpers and that we are bigoted and, and, and that we are too narrow in our philosophy. Listen, I want to tell you that even Jesus Christ said the road to heaven is a narrow road, but folks, that narrow road is wide enough to carry anybody on it that accepts Him. And that might be you today. You say, Preacher, I, I didn't come to church today ready to do business with God. I didn't, come for, I didn't sign up for this. That's okay. Your plan and God's plans are two different things. And this might be the very moment if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today and you've tried to find fulfillment in other ways, He is saying today, I am the only way. And if you'd like to accept Him as your Savior and Lord, come forward and we'll pray. I'll lead you in the sinner's prayer. And you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you leave this place that you are on the right road, going the right way. You will know that you're not on the one-way road going the wrong way. Maybe there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Maybe there's someone who just needs to pray at the altar. Maybe someone wants to join the church. God knows the need today. This invitation time is for His glory and for your decision. Would you please stand?